This week's episode of South London Hardcore is sponsored by the Tupperware Man, the UK and Ireland's number one Tupperware salesman. The full range of Tupperware available from tupperwareman.co.uk and now on Amazon as well. If you go to tinyurl.com slash manofplastic, you can get your Tupperware from Amazon and support the show at the same time. If you'd rather go to tupperwareman.co.uk where you can use PayPal or any major credit card and find other information about Tupperware heating up, you can book a Tupperware party with a Tupperware man. All the information is on tupperwareman.co.uk. You've probably been using the supermarket range cheap Tupperware knockoffs that are widely available now for sealing up your sweet corn when you're putting it back in the fridge or taking your lunch to work or even opening an orange. This is the real deal. You would notice the difference immediately. Yeah, it's not pound shop or, you know, you're in a, a post office general store and they've got these little things with lids on that are... No, no, no. This is this is stuff that will last. Tupperwareman.co.uk, tinyurl.com slash manofplastic. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. My Drug, my co-host is Steve Walsh. I wish I knew some uh, of her own speech to drop in there that would make sense, but I don't off the top of my head. And I'm thinking I probably made that same joke when in we, our uh, episode about yeah Timmy's Mead <laughs> on screen. Yeah, I bet you did. Yeah. yeah, we're 151 episodes into South London Hardcore, and I think this is my favourite so far, Steve. It was a bit special, wasn't it? It was experience. It has all been built into this. On this week's show, we visit the Stanley Kubrick Archive, which is in the London College of Communication at the Elephant and Castle. If you listen to the Up the Elephant Around the Castle episode we did live at Elefest in autumn, we mentioned that it's there. We met Richard Daniels, the archivist, and he took us on the t- and he took us on a tour of the archive. It was our third visit. Um, we walked around with Richard with a microphone, showing us bits and bobs. It's vast. There's so much stuff in there. Boxes and just stacks of loads of all sorts of things. It's just ridiculous. Overwhelming. We barely scraped the surface. So after our chat with Richard, we'll talk about some of our favourite bits and bobs in the archive. When we started doing the show, I had no idea that Sandy Kubrick's archive was, was now in South London. It's a remarkable thing to discover, isn't it? I watched the there's a John Do- Ronson documentary, Sandy Hughes Boxes, where it says that they go into the London College of Communication, but I never made the connection that, that was going to be in the Elephant Castle and we'd have a chance to talk about it, let alone visit it. You know, it's, it's such a, a, a rich career that he had. Clockwork Orange, Doctor Strangelove, 2001, just classics, isn't it? Yeah, Stanley Kubrick is arguably the greatest film director of all time if you can kind of quantify these things doing the show you know you're always coming across these discoveries you know like I said like the other week oh Angela Carter is from Balham Bourbon Biscuit yeah I mean every week you throw a dart at our episode guide on com, and there's some discovery in there you know on the music episode say like Manfred Mann you know we went round Manfred Mann's house in Greenwich that's incredible I was born in the same place as Giant Haystacks. I mean, you know, it just never stops. No, it is incredible, but you you wouldn't have for a minute have thought that 
when Stanley Kubrick died in, uh, was it 1999, all of the stuff he had left over from his films was certainly, you know, the bulk of his belongings and uh, memorabilia was put in boxes and moved to the Edmonton Castle and that's where it is. I mean, it's d- difficult to get your head around. You know, in terms of, like, one director's, like you say, body of work and the objects relating to that, you know, it's one of the most important archives in the world, certainly in terms of films. That's the thing. In terms of the way he worked, I don't think other directors accumulate as much stuff and do as much research, you know, as a standard operating procedure as Kubrick. So it's a particularly rich archive, isn't it? That's the thing. There's, a, You know, it's something where I can't think of another filmmaker who would have had enough stuff relating to his films to intrigue you. You know, it's something that um, Richard said sort of going around there, at a certain point where suddenly you get to like Barry Lyndon and there's like shoe protectors in a box that they haven't chucked away. He's just like keeping everything related to the film, which is, you know, for um, film historians, what a gift. Yeah, dry cleaning bills from, from the killing. Amazing, absolutely amazing place. And we'll give you some details about visiting the archive, but first here's uh, Richard taking us round. Do you want to tell us where we are? Richard? We are in the strong room of the University of the Arts London's Archives and Special Collections Centre. This is where we keep all of the magic that we spend most of our time showing to students and researchers and members of the general public who are interested in the kind of collections that we hold here. The noise people can hear in the background is that a special climate controlled. But what's it doing? Richard? It certainly is. Those are environmental <laughs> control units and they keep the strong room area to a constant 17 degrees centigrade and 50% relative humidity. Through this door here, <laughs> we've got a colder room for things like some of the more damaged photographs, uh, film stock, negatives and things like that. And that's kept at a lower temperature and around about the same relative humidity. Um, because obviously the colder you keep something, the better it is. But, you know, we could freeze all of this stuff, but then there'd be no point, nobody would be able to look at it. So, it's always a balancing act in archives, balancing between preservation of the materials and access to the materials. And some archivists lean further towards preservation and some lean further towards access. But you're always trying to find that balance. Right? Because you're based at a university, I imagine the emphasis has to be on access. Um, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure whether it's because we're at a university, but I thought... I suppose, I mean, the important thing for us as the staff of the archive is that people get to see this material and use it and be inspired by it in one way or another. And so, yeah, I guess that we probably lean slightly more towards access. But it's not like we're so blasé that we, you know, throw documents around the room and we, you know, allow people to stick photographs under bright lights for months on end and things like that. So we're quite careful, particularly when it comes to, like, loaning to exhibitions that the security conditions and the environmental conditions are good enough for that material to still be, you know, survive after it comes back to us. And we keep a record of everything that goes out so we don't have things out on display too often and for too long. Quite the idea that, to you, throwing documents around is the same as putting a photograph under a light. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just shows how how, how strongly your archive... uh, archive is in you I don't get what you mean like you're like you know throwing documents around or putting them under a light yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean <laughs> like they're both bad but, yeah, I agree <laughs> they're both bad but, there's but, a line why'd you cross that line it's unacceptable absolutely absolutely but I mean the, the thing is 
I suppose as well that bad handling, if somebody's handling documents or photographs badly, if they're holding them in their hands and bending them to look at them and things like that, it's obvious there and then to them that they're doing damage. You can see because you're bending something and you can see if you throw documents around that it gets damaged. But light bleaches away prints and even worse with photographic materials and particularly colour photographs. I mean, we've all got, you know, old family photographs from the 80s that look this kind of like... Steve's got from the 70s as well, actually. <laughs> He's got colour photographs from the 70s. He, he must have come from a wealthy family. We were like yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, you look at them now and you think, oh, the 80s must have looked like this kind of faded yellow colour. And, and it's not the case, obviously. When those photographs came to you, first of all, from Happy Snaps or wherever it was you got them from, they were lovely, bright colours. But over the years, ageing process and their being exposed to light makes them start to fade and colour photographs are worse than black and white photographs for that so you know it is the equivalent sticking something under a bright light is the equivalent of throwing a document around a room it's active damage and passive damage isn't it but it's both it's damage both ways it depends on how close you're putting the light to the picture <laughs> whether it's active or not yeah. that photograph's yeah. on fire I think <laughs> it's too close to the light let's talk about we do use the archives in teaching um, on a number of different courses so we have courses that are set tasks that involve actually researching in the archives. You know, we've got a group that are going to be starting in January of um, photography students and they'll be having specific days where they have to access the Kubrick archive. In fact, it's photography and sound arts and they'll have access to the Kubrick archive and be using that material or that research to inspire them to create some new work either you know, using some of that research or just inspired by that research. And we have other students on curation courses, conservation courses, and they're all... We use the collections as much as possible within the teaching across the university, yeah, in one way or another. We've had graphic design projects and typography projects. You name it. It's an arts university, and so they can find a myriad ways of taking an old bit of paper and, and creating something new based on it. So it's always really interesting. Should we go and open some boxes? Let's open some boxes. Go on. Um, well, so I guess what we have in here are our main collections. Well, the strength of the main strengths of our collections are filmmaking, graphic design, history of printing, um, and we have other collections based around sound arts and journalism as well. Um, but. Obviously, the main appeal is the Stanley Kubrick archive. It's our biggest collection and the most popular. I'd say like 98% of the people that come through the door are here to look at Kubrick materials. So shall we start with Kubrick? Let's. Do you want to pick out some of your favourite stuff? From the Kubrick some of my favourite yeah, stuff? Yeah, alright. That would be nice. We're starting in a section of the Stanley Kubrick archive, which we call Business and Personal Papers. The archive's kind of arranged, organised chronologically by project. What, what happened was um, the family told me at the very beginning that basically what Stanley did is when he finished the film, he took all the paperwork from his office and put them in boxes and set them to one side. So we've organised the collection chronologically by project. And within each of those sections, it's all the material that relates to the initial development of an idea, so from everything from kind of early draft scripts or notes on the original novel through to release schedules, um, 
poster designs and the press cuttings of the reviews and the adverts coming back to him and some fan letters sometimes in some sections. But what that leaves as well is all of this material related to kind of like the business side of being Stanley Kubrick, where, you know, he's still involved in the release of a VHS box set or if somebody writes to him about doing a Kubrick season and all of that paper continued. So we've got this section called business and personal papers. It also includes kind of um, memorabilia, like his old cinema... uh, union cards and ping pong bats and drumsticks and things like that, it's just really nice but within it everybody knows, or lots of people know that Stanley Kubrick was fascinated with stationery Um, and this is probably one of my favourite items from the archive which is a piece of Stanley Kubrick headed note paper and he's then gone and written on it in red ink this is how it takes ink and then above it is actually typed on it, this is how it types. And it's a simple piece of kind of plain paper. But look at the quality of that paper. Hold it up to the light, you can see the watermark. Not too oh, close yeah. to the light, Steve. Not too <laughs> <laughs> Abby Mills. Abby so. Mills, absolutely. But I just, I, it's so simple and it's got nothing to do with his films or anything, but it says so much about the man that, you know, that he's not going to leave it to somebody else to go and check out different types of paper to find the right kind of paper. A, first of all, he's interested in the right kind of paper so much that you know he's going to sample different types of paper, but he's also going to do it himself with a pen. He's even writing down the notes about the paper. He says charge for stationery? Charge for stationery, yeah. I guess he's probably trying to work out who to which expenses bill to put it on. Because... Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things that the archive tells us that I think is lost in a lot of the writing and all of the, you know, the dodgy YouTube videos and things about Stanley Kubrick is that the man was a Hollywood filmmaker. He was a businessman just as much as he was an artist, you know, just as much as he's interested in making great films about interesting topics based on novels he really likes. He's also interested in making money and keeping as much of that money as possible. So he keeps his budgets as low as possible, even though he films for a long period of time. But maybe the two things are intertwined. Give if you some leeway to do loads of takes. Exactly. he doesn't spend a load of money on whatever. That's right. And so a Kubrick crew is always much smaller than uh, any other Hollywood film crew would have been. And at the beginning, on the pre-production phase, the trick is get family involved as much as possible because they're dirt cheap. Hmm. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah, this is part of this uh, one of my favourite pieces from the archive because it just kind of says a little bit about. Can we ask what about like. this this little yellow notepad that's bound with ribbon? Certainly. Says well, these are the, oh, they're compliments cards, so right. they're from Stanley Kubrick. So, you know, somewhere in the archive, and I couldn't tell you where off the top of my head, there is actually a list of Christmas presents. So there's a list of people who are to receive Christmas presents and then certain presents that they'll get. So quite a lot of people get a bottle of whiskey and quite a lot of people get something else like that. And I guess that, you know, when he gave out books or something like that, these bookmarks that say from Stanley Kubrick in this pretty distinctive font Mm. as well. I think it might even be. No, it's completely different to the font for this uh, paper that we were looking at before, but, you know... We can cut that, Richard. We don't want to make you look bad. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That's what we want. We're standing next to what I presume was Stanley Kubrick's bookshelf as well. Yeah. Well, the books in the archive are quite 
interesting in the fact that what we seem to have is a predominance of books about war, armies, and firearms. Um, there is, at Chigwickbury, at Kubrick's house, still a very gorgeous library, and in it you can see lots of really nice books on art and architecture, and some of them have got very telltale post-it notes sticking out of them that resemble some of the books we've got here that we use as research for a film where he's put post-it notes in to mark pages of interest and things like that. So I have a feeling that what we have here is just as much the books that Christiana Kubrick didn't want to keep in the house. Um, having said that, though, I think even if we had all of the books, the predominance of military-based um, texts is going to be pretty overwhelming. Um, this is what has been classed as the personal library, and it's because when the archive was sorted out on the estate uh, before it came to us, they were looked at by, uh, uh, by somebody, and he was trying to group them together. And so where he found books that were on a topic that was related to a film that Kubrick was making, he put those together. So we have a section, a library for the pre-production on Full Metal Jacket, and basically, these books didn't fall into any of those um, categories, so they've become this personal and business papers library or the personal library. Um, but you can identify, I mean, you can see here that we have, how many volumes is it? Hundreds, loads anyway. One, two, three, four, five, seven shelves of the official records of the Union and Confederate armies for the American Civil War. So does this relate to a film that he was hoping to make, do we think? Yeah, well... there's a lot of stuff here about... It's specifically American military, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in the 50s, he was definitely working on a film which was... I think the title was The 7th Virginia Cavalry Raider. And it was um, related to the story of a, a guy called General Mosby. Um, and it looks very much like he revived that project again in the 1980s because we've got some snippets of later script for that. Not enough for us to be able to kind of sit down and say, right, you know, this was a, a project that he entered into kind of fully, but there's definitely evidence that he was at least playing around with the idea of doing a Civil War film in the 80s. He was playing around with the idea of doing lots of films in the 80s when he, you know, that's what he spent his time doing when he wasn't actually making a film. He was thinking about what's the next film to make, reading hundreds of books, doing the research, coming up with ideas, you know. When he's not making a film, he's thinking about the next film to make basically. Another thing prominent on this bookshelf is books about Kubrick, biographies. For example, there are five copies of John Baxter's Stanley Kubrick and sort of three copies of someone else, four copies of someone else. Look, there's six of that one. I believe this is probably the case that they were sent to him rather than he deliberately went out and sourced them um, or sent to the family as well because I think some of them actually post-date Kubrick's death. Definitely the Michel Simon, the, the re-edit definitely does. Um, so yeah, this isn't, uh, I don't think this is you know evidence of the egomaniac who thinks, oh, there's a book about me, I should have ten copies. <laughs> uh, something like that. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a good spattering of books about Kubrick in the, that is now kind of artificially part of the Kubrick archive. While we're standing here as well, and we're doing a kind of bit of my favourite items, here's another really nice piece. This is, um, I guess, a publisher's proof yeah. of The Tailor of, Pan of Panama by John le Carré, with a little note 
to Kubrick himself. It just says, Dear Stanley, just maybe this time, as ever, David. And it's, it's dated April 96. Um, and it's just really nice to see, you know, this kind of thing. He's obviously, they're obviously, you know, trying to get him to make a film of the Taylor of Panama. And it, it links up really well with... You can find it. That's all Arthur Clark. So, here we go. There's a really nice connection between this pre-publication proof of John le Carre's The Tailor of Panama and this letter, or it's, it's really a reply from Kubrick to a letter, a, sep- a, a separate letter where John le Carre again is presenting Kubrick with a novel that he thinks he might want to make. And this is Kubrick writing back to him in, in a way that... He has such a really nice style of writing, I think. Um, but also, just you can again, you can see something of the personality in the, of the man in the way that he does these numbers. So I'm going to read it anyway. Dear David, I love the book as I have loved all of your work, and I'm sorry I had to ration my time to read it. But for me, at least, it was great to have a book you want to get back to and know it's there each day. Unhappily, the problem is still pretty much as I fumbled and bumbled it out to you on the phone yesterday. Essentially, how do you tell a story it took the author... 165,000, my guess, good and necessary words to tell, with 12,000 words, about the number of words you get to say in a two-hour movie based on 150 words per minute speaking rate, less 30% silence and action, without flattening everybody into gingerbread men. I've only said this to John Kelly, who seemed to me unusually involved in this, and who I know loves and admires you and your work. I am very flattered and grateful you let me read the MSS so early on, I don't suppose you want moronic logic of the audience feedback on any plot points, so none offered. Kasparov does not need the comments of kibitzers. Best regards. (laughs) P.S. Your fax number is old, and I would rest easier if someone could acknowledge receipt of this fax. (laughs) But it's so nice. I mean, he has this kind of way of writing. It's kind of friendly and personal, and then at the same time kind of detailed... Mm. Um, yeah, the kind of technic- it's technical way of looking at things. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It comes to the fore. It's a useful summary for why so many adaptations struggle. Definitely. In the, you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're by, by necessity taking a larger work in a different format and forced to fit it into a completely different framework. That's right, yeah. I think probably, well, with the exclusion of The Shining, which is a big novel, and I guess uh, The Look of Barry Lyndon is, Kubrick more often than not takes quite short books short novels novellas and turns them into films um, and maybe that's again part of the reason one of the interesting things about the Kubrick archive is that um, this section that we're in now which is five bays about 35 metres worth of shelving um, we, we'll count archives or large archives at least in linear metres so each of the shelves can contain up to eight standard sized archival boxes that makes it a linear metre and there are 35 in here. This covers everything that we've got for all of his films from uh, Fear and Desire up to Dr. Strangelove. And it just gets, you know, considerably bigger the later the films are until Eyes Wide Shut is probably four or five times the amount of material we've got for these. So we've got seven films in these 35 metres. And this is uh, Pads of Glory. And if it's what I think it is, this is the third draft screenplay by Stanley Kubrick, Jim Thompson, and Calder Willingham. Now, there's a story in Kirk Douglas's biography about the fact that 
he'd signed up to do Paths of Glory, and when he turned up in Munich to actually make the film, he was presented with a script which was completely different to the original script that he'd been, he'd been looking at, and it was full of kind of really bad dialogue, Americanisms everywhere, and it ends with this happy ending kind of staff car screeches to a halt and turns up at the at the execution at the end and a guy comes running out and stops the execution. And in uh, in Kirk Douglas's biography, he writes about the fact that he basically threw the script at Kubrick and said, what the hell is this shit? Um, what's going on here? Why is why is this, um, this like this? And Kubrick said to him, we want to make some money. We, you know, we want it to be popular. We want a, a film to actually make some money. And Douglas apparently then said to him, I told you this film was never going to make a penny, but this was the film that I wanted to do. I wanted to make the film based on the script that I saw at the first place. And, um, you know, we're going to do that, whether you like it or not. And so he basically forced them to go back to it. Um, I think it's Jim Thompson's biographer who refutes the fact that this happened um, and says that, you know, there was there, at least there wasn't this meeting and this big row. But this third draft of the script is the draft script where we have the reprieve right at the end. See if I can find it. It's interesting. Obviously, you'd, you'd have to look at the, at the dates of this and the dates of the beginning of shooting to see whether, you know, it, it's the case that they rewrote this script while uh, Kirk Douglas was in America and it was still kind of active when he got there but it, it, it's always nice to have kind of archival documentation that either proves a story or disproves a story, it's always quite nice I like, I like archives that are myth breakers It's also it sort of bursts the idea of people having a definite vision oh, that's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, unworkable in any other way, I mean we, we looked before uh, um, the scripts for 2001 where there's the alternate version where there's narration over the monolith that sort of is far too um, explicable. Then, yeah. you know, uh, Hal has a conversation with himself about what he's planning to do. And it's a completely different ending. And again, nothing like the vision that you yeah. imagine people go into the film with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's this, there's this myth around Stanley Kubrick that's kind of... it's obviously built around the fact that he is an intelligent filmmaker who makes really great films. He has a reputation for um, being in control of every aspect of filmmaking and being interested in every aspect of filmmaking, but then he kind of gets blown out of all proportion and he becomes this kind of all-knowing monolith himself. I think sometimes there's, there are people out there who have this view of Stanley Kubrick as being some form of you know, his own personal monolith who knows exactly what he wants from the very beginning what the archive shows us most of the time is that even if he didn't have an idea of what he wanted he needed to see loads of things before he got there and trial and error Jan Harlan actually his brother-in-law always quotes this one thing he says um, that, that on one occasion they were talking or on a few occasions and Kubrick was saying something about you know people call me a G or somebody was saying to him people call you a genius and he said genius is um what does he say he says something about um it's all well and good being called a genius if only they knew how hard it was and it is you know we, the uh, the archive is evidence of so much trial and error so much hard work so much kind of like just going for it and keep on going for it there are um 
hundreds and hundreds of sketches for the poster for The Shining that um, Saul Bass did for Kubrick, and he just keeps sending him loads and loads and loads because Kubrick's looking for the one that fits with his vision. He can't write to Saul Bass and say, I want this, and it has to be like this, this and this. And so he has to keep looking at it. And there's evidence of that all over the place, all of the location research, you know. One entire box in an uh, Eyes Wide Shut uh, that's just photographs of gates because he's looking for the right gate for what he wants. Part of it's obviously an obsessive attention to detail, but also some of it is just a man who doesn't really know what he's looking for until he sees it. Is it right there's 35,000 photographs for Eyes Wide Shut of locations uh, scouting? Manuel Harlan estimates that that's around about the amount that he took, but I couldn't tell you whether... I mean, there's a hell of a lot. It's 150 boxes of photographs of London and Hertfordshire looking for bits of London and Hertfordshire that can be passed off as New York, yeah. 35,000 could be an understatement, I'm not sure. Do you get many people looking through those boxes? Because that's a bit where the archive gets a bit specialist. (laughs) Not really, no. Those photos are where John Ronson dives straight in, uh, in the documentary Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, which is where I first became aware of the archive. In terms of a change in tone or approach to a film, one of the things that struck me on an earlier visit, on display you had... uh, a series of things about Dr. Strangelove mm-hmm. and there's mention of the serious version yeah so the the kind of the trail the paper trail of the script for Dr. Strangelove is really interesting because what it looks like we've got is um, Kubrick approached the author Peter George who he'd written this book Red Alert under the pseudonym Peter Bryan and he approached him originally to write a dramatization, a screenplay version of his book, and the two were going to work together on what was basically going to be a serious film about, you know, a general. Um, basically, the novel and the film were going to be about how all of these fail-safe mechanisms that are supposed to be in place to prevent crazy people from causing a third world war, and how weak they were, and how the chances of having a third world war were a little too high for anybody to feel safe. And so they started originally writing this very serious film. Then it almost looks as if Peter George went off and started writing something different, which was more a kind of a farcical comedy about the rise of a nuclear scientist to um, through kind of like the political sphere. In one of the scripts, I think he even becomes the prime minister, or not the prime minister, the president. And there's a lot of kind of um, Freud type things in there and I mean his popularity means he gets a lot of sex again lots of the titles of the characters lots of the female characters have these quite derogatory names and things like that but um, it's a completely different film it's not really a film about nuclear war at all Um, but it's a film about this scientist rise to power it still works on one level as being a film about the kind of interconnections between the military-industrial complex and the science-based thing and politics and and questions who rules who, which I think is still in Doctor Strangelove. Um, And so you've got these two strands, and then at some point in time, Jimmy Harris says in an interview that um, we did with him that one night he and Kubrick were batting around ideas and they got a little bit drunk and they were talking about what would happen if we made this a farce and, and, and turned it into a comedy. And then he went away and woke up the next morning thinking what a stupid idea what have we been having but obviously it must have stuck because 
eventually what what you come out with is almost this amalgamation of those two films you've got the plot line which is basically what red alert is but you've introduced this comedy uh, element to it um, and i suppose the doctor strange love character comes from that other yeah the doctor strange love character essentially comes from this other script yeah there's also i mean amongst the scripts is a really interesting one where um it starts way into the future and you start in space and the camera kind of sweeps across a barren planet and then this alien starts to explain the fact that they're going to tell the story about how this planet became this barren wasteland and and so it's almost like in the future there's an alien race looking back at the dead earth talking about how stupid humanity was because they destroyed themselves kind of thing and that's you know so there's almost like elements of 2001 Mm. back then in, in Doctor Strange, which is quite nice. All right, Clockwork Orange. What have we got this Clockwork Orange that isn't script-based? Uh, do you have any cod pieces or hats? <laughs> no. Wallaby sticks. But we do have... Hang on. Oh, hello. Kick the Going up to the high shelves. <laughs> I suppose Clockwork Orange you've got to keep it on the top shelf. I mean. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. Particularly this rude material here. So we're in Clockwork Orange now, and we're looking at some of the pre-production materials. And these are all stills of costume tests for the Droog uniforms, really. And what's really nice, again, is you can see parts of the decision-making process. So you've got this photograph of um, two of the actors dressed in different white costumes and one of them with the bowler hat and the braces is circled to say yes and the other one which is more of a kind of just an ordinary white jacket's got a great big red cross on it and you can go through it and see some of the ones that they thought about doing beret definitely looks very sinister <laughs> it does you could see how that made the short i don't know if a beret would work in like a beatdown in, like, a, in a fight in, yeah as it's yeah. moving on screen i don't know if it would uh... malcolm mcdowell doing a bit of a pose with a stick of some kind and this is, yeah, so now we're getting to all of these different, they went to, it looks like they just went through so many different hats trying to find the right hat. So you've got like the Spanish, uh, what do you call that? I don't know. You just see, doesn't it? I mean, he looks like he's got a top hat on the other guy. a top hat. Yeah. Top hat. He looks um, like the mad hat. That's <laughs> it's like a gnome. French revolutionary woolly <laughs> hat kind of thing, I think. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's gnome hat, a maybe. And chef's whites almost. Yeah, it's interesting because the hats obviously are, are so iconic, but yeah. you forget that obviously there would have been so many options. It's a rough. Well, the whole the whole costume is so unlikely, isn't it? Yeah, it's not like yeah. oh, uh, look at these ridiculous alternatives. I mean, the one that they chose is so extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, what's what's interesting is if you read the novel. Alex is always describing the clothes that him and his droogs are wearing. And then when he comes out of prison and he becomes... He meets up with new teenagers and he starts talking about them. He's always saying, you know, we or they were dressed in the height of fashion. And then he describes in intricate details the costume that they're wearing. But the costumes that that um, Kubrick and Milena Cananero, the costume designer on Clockwork Orange, chose to go with are nothing like these ones that are described. I think actually maybe... The first costume that Alex describes in the novel includes having a cob piece, but it's got it's got like huge shoulder pads, if I remember rightly, and sounds more like a kind of Jacobean, Shakespearean type thing rather than um, than these. And we have one researcher 
He's actually a co-editor of mine on a book that we've got coming out in December, um, Peter Kramer, who um, teaches over at the University of East Anglia. Now, Peter's written a book on A Clockwork Orange, and he's come up with the hypothesis. There's unfortunately not very much ev- evidence for the decision-making process behind the costumes of A Clockwork Orange, but he's come up with this hypothesis, which is that what they did is they co- kind of took a cross-section of two different youth cultures. So you've got part of the skinhead look, you know, the kind of workwear and the boots Braces. and everything and the braces and things like that. And then added an element of gla- glam rock with the canes and the eye makeup mm. and the hats and things like that. And possibly, you know, the motivation behind that is that by taking two different youth cultures and merging them together, you get something that's more timeless than if you were, you know, if they were dressed like skinheads, we'd say this was it's a period, you know, this point, is a period piece. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so... There's definitely, I think, there's an argument there. It'd be nice to kind of know how true it is. I'm not sure whether we ever will do or not, but, um, yeah. That's what the archive is kind of here for as well, so that people can try and answer these questions and create new questions. It's always very nice. So tell us more about the book. We have a book that's coming out. It's edited by myself, Tatiana Lucic, who teaches at Cambridge University, and Peter Kramer, as I was explaining before. It's called Stanley Kubrick New Perspectives. And it's basically um, a series of chapters on Kubrick, his work. There's at least one chapter for every film. Some of the films have got more than one. The earlier films um, are covered by a couple of chapters together, really. And basically, each of the chapters is written by somebody who's been into the archive and spent quite a bit of time doing research for themselves. So they're looking at the different films from very different aspects and different angles. It's not like a, you know, just a chronological making of series of making of essays. Um, and they're all academics, but it's not academically written. It's kind of accessibly written. Um, and I suppose the, the most unique thing is that every single one of these essays is informed by archival research. It's not about the archive. It's about the films, but it uses archival evidence to... Um, to highlight arguments. And this is the first time this has been done on, on this kind of larger scale. The Stanley Kubrick Archives book, which Tashin released, um, I think in 2005 that came out, before, before the archive came to the university anyway, is a series of sometimes new but mainly regurgitated essays that already existed about Kubrick, illustrated by lots of photographs of archive materials but the two aren't intertwined they're not part of the whole thing and so this is really the first major publication that has the archive at the heart of it i think in in that sense the the elephant in the room richard if you'll excuse the pun is what is all of stanley kubrick's stuff doing at the elephant and castle in lcc how did it end up here it's a kind of long it's a long story um so settle down, listeners. Get yourself a uh, no <laughs> a co- nice cup of, of hot cocoa. <laughs> sit back in your glass armchair. of uh, milk plus. Yeah, it's a long story. Um, really, all of this material, which now you know is the the Stanley Kubrick archive, was kept at the house where Kubrick lived with his family, Chidwickbury, and it was in boxes and it was in outhouses around around the house, around the estate, and then in porter cabins and all over the place. And, and it stayed there after he died, and the family lived amongst it for all this time. And quite late on, well, 
some years later, they were approached by a number of different people who wanted to use the archive in one way or another. The Deutsches Film Institute in Frankfurt wanted to curate an exhibition on Stanley Kubrick. And they came to the family and said, you know, that they'd like to use some of the material from the archive to create this exhibition. So was it public at that point that he had a load of... Everyone knew he had a load of stuff? You see, I don't think it was that well known, but... John Ronson had done a Guardian Weekend magazine article, and I don't. The problem here is I'm not 100% sure about the timings. But John Ronson had been invited by Tony Fruin to come to the estate, um, and he describes a little bit about this experience at the beginning of his documentary Stanley Kubrick's Boxes, and he did a small piece for the Weekend magazine for the Guardian about his experience of of seeing the Stanley Kubrick archive at Stanley Kubrick's house. I'm not sure whether that came before or during the process of the Deutsches Film Museum, but the Deutsches Film Museum obviously became aware of this, exib- uh, of this archive's existence. Um, also, the publisher's Taschen wanted to do this book, Stanley Kubrick Archives, again, you know, looking at... at and using the archive material, and they'd already done a couple from other filmmakers before that. Um, and it's only these approaches, John Ronson, Taschen, and the Deutsches Film Museum, that made the family suddenly realise, well, all this stuff of Stanley's is, is really interesting. Now, Christiana's described before how she was getting quite sad because Stanley's stuff was basically, you know, getting old and tired and looking... Um, faded and things and they lived amongst it and but she couldn't throw it away because you know it was her late husband's it was part of the, her memories uh, and so it was at that point in time that the family suddenly realised well this material is actually of interest to the outside world as well and that people can learn something from from his archive and they started looking for a home for the archive to, um, to go to now the way the University of the Arts got involved is Um, serendipitous really one of our associate lecturers one of their family members is a friend of the Kubrick family and was having dinner at one time and was told you know basically oh we're looking for a home for daddy's archive and we we need to find somewhere for for it to go and they came rushing back you know to the university to the directors and basically said Stanley Kubrick's archive it's there they're looking for a home for it and you know we should take it and and that's when the university started getting involved in the negotiations we know that there are other universities that were also talking at one point in time or another with the family about um, taking on the archive we like to say at least our story is that the reason why the university of the arts ended up with the archive is because we as an arts university we're committed not only to keeping you know the name of Kubrick alive by holding the archive and letting people come in and do PhDs and research on how Kubrick made his films but also we use the archive to inspire new artists to make new works new films sound pieces we've had all manner of different um, things basically art pieces that have been produced inspired by people's access to this archive in one way or another and Christiana's a painter her daughter's a jewellery maker and, and painter too. The other daughter was an opera singer. So we think that, you know, there's a nice kind of gelling there between us and the family. And we still have close connections with them as well, so that's really nice. This is our 
probably second most popular collection um, in the archive. This is the Her Noise archive. Now, this will be of interest to you guys, actually. Her Noise was an exhibition that was held at the South London Gallery, organised by an organisation called Electra. And Electra had been putting on experimental music gigs around London and had realised that they didn't really commission many uh, women. And being feminists themselves, they thought that they needed to kind of redress the balance. And so they created this exhibition called Her Noise, which was um, where they commissioned female artists who'd been working in sound in one way or another to create new works to go on display. But they also had a small section which they called the archive. And it was full of research materials related to um, women in music and sound art and, you know, feminism and rock and roll and things like that. Um, and so what this archive is, is really, it's partly the, um, the papers and the materials of their research and the admin of setting up the exhibition. It's also partly some of the outcomes from the exhibition. So Kim Gordon did a thing called reverse karaoke in there and it basically they built this massive tent that she painted and she recorded a song which was played in the tent and then there were instruments in there and people could play the music to go along with it and oh, then they right. recorded their own versions of it and so we've got these I think four boxes of CDs of original recordings that people made of the reverse karaoke and they were able to do their own artwork as well um, but the, the archive section had things like videos and DVDs, it had records, so we've got a load of 7 inches and 12 inches CDs, and it's all kind of women in sound art and music. But this piece, which I think is my favourite, or one of my favourites, is really the very beginning of the project. It's, they call it the map, and it is like a mind map, so basically it's just a list of artists that they were thinking could be represented or featured in one way or another in this exhibition. And you can see how there are kind of like lists of, of people and they're grouped together in little boxes. I can't, for the life of me, work out how these people are connected up, the ones that are kind of boxed off into these little pigeonholes. It's really intriguing. You can spend an entire day just reading through it thinking... I like the fact Laurie Anderson work? is in her own box. She's the only <laughs> yeah. person who has a box to herself. Well, why not? Because it's not... Yeah. I, I was like trying to work out, is it chronological or...? Yeah. No. It's not, and I, at one at one point I thought it was, you know, we had like solo artists and bands and more sound art and then more kind of music related, but that doesn't really work. You can tell, I think, from this list and also particularly from the music that's available in the CDs and the DVDs and the fanzines and things that there's a particular period of time that's quite heavily concentrated on, the kind of Riot Girl period. So there's a lot of, of Riot Girl involved in there and we've got really nice collection of fanzines as part of it as well and it, it, all around those subjects it's a, it's a nice collection this here is our latest acquisition and the latest um, collection to be catalogued and available on our um, archives catalogue and it's the Les Coleman collection uh, Les Coleman was an artist a writer and more importantly to us an avid collector, a collector of poetry but this collection here is actually his collection of um, comic books and graphic novels and he had very distinct tastes it seems and he was particularly interested in 
the underground comics movement, which turned into the alternative comics movement later on. And we now have, with the Les Coleman collection, probably the most comprehensive collection of Robert Crumb material that's available publicly in the world, probably. Including bits of original artwork um, by different people. Wow. Uh, there's a crumb behind you. There's a crumb behind you, yeah. There's a Charles <laughs> Burns there. Crumb work, also a Canadian comic book artist called Julie Duchesne. Alongside the, col- the, the comprehensive collections of particular artists, there's a lot of kind of first editions and one offs of different underground comics, some rarities, and some complete runs. And we've got complete run- a complete run of Raw magazine, which was created by uh, Spiegelman. Um, and it's the only complete run, I think, that is again that's publicly available possibly the only one in existence it was something like 11 to 12 11 or 12 volumes and we have every single one of them um, so it's a, it's a really good collection first appearance of uh, mouse yeah first appearance of mouse that's right and it is now pretty well catalogued and, and available so people can come down and have a look at our wares and see what we've got needs a bit of reboxing as you can see it's still in a bit of a mess but yeah that's our new collection We have also, alongside the Coleman collection, which is specifically really underground comics, a lot of it's autobiographical, we have a large comic book collection which is much more mainstream with lots of superhero comics, both British and American, but also um, rarer comics, uh, foreign language uh, comics, and and it's an ever-growing collection. People learn that we've got comic books and they decide to kind of send us more boxes of things we just took in a, a couple of boxes of beanos and dandies that we're going to add to it. Um, yeah, so that's part of our graphic design remit. Our main strengths, as far as collections are concerned, are in filmmaking, graphic design, and the history of printing. We also have a large collection of the work of Tom Eckersley, who's probably one of the most famous modernist poster designers from England. And more importantly to us, here at the LCC, the London College of Communication, he set up the very first school of graphic design, which was here at LCC. Um, and that's why we got all of his work. It was kept in the graphic design department and came down. Including, let's see if I can find my favourite poster. Did I show you my favourite poster last time? Uh, no, but the size of that Kubrick portrait. <laughs> the size, oh, that Kubrick portrait used to sit down the back of the aisles, um, kind of be- between um, the 2001 aisles. So every time I opened 2001, he was looking down his glasses. <laughs> at like that big space baby. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it got too unnerving, so I had to have it moved. Because I tend to be here... Yeah, you don't want Kubrick watching over you, do you? Exactly. Or you're sort of moving his stuff about. You know, there's this thing as well, like... Um, there's, there are people who worked with Stanley Kubrick for decades, you know, for like most of their life. And there are, you know, there are some people who are still doing it. There are some people who are still appearing at screenings and doing screen talks and contributing to every, lots of different things related to Kubrick. So it's almost like they're still working for him. So having him staring at me down an aisle was a little too much to cope with. Yeah, it's a Gillette poster by Tom Eckersley. What year is this, do we reckon? This is 1940s, if I remember rightly. 
Good mornings begin with Gillette. Good Bring mornings. You're shaving up Gillette. today with the new Gillette dispenser. And yeah, you've got the outline, at least, or the shape of two monkeys uh, <laughs> and facing each other, and one of them is shaving off his beard somehow with the Gillette razor. And there's just something kind of cool. Yeah, uh, his work is fantastic. Playful isn't it? about it, and at the you've same you've got time, them lined up all along the side of the of the Kubrick archive as well, haven't you? How much for space reasons? Yeah, in the in the strong room as you walk in on the right hand side, we've now got hanging racking um, with some of the Tonakers' work up there. Yeah, um, there's always a bit of a kind of dilemma about what to do with framed work because it's much easier to get out and put on walls if it's already framed, but at the same time, it's not actually always that good for the materials. All of these frames that we've got are conservation quality, so that's better and have been fitted by professionals, which is always a good way to go. You've got sort of craft materials. Is This this is all to do with framing and packaging and presenting, is it? Yeah, so um, we use pH neutral glue sometimes if we need to make up specific boxes or to make up um, folders for different types of material, and obviously you need to cut down card and things like that. Um, all of it's conservation grade. Well, I'm not sure if you can get a conservation grade Stanley knife, but you know, <laughs> just be careful. Yeah, it? absolutely. Um, <laughs> Stanley knife. But yeah, <laughs> Stanley knife. And the spray would that be for cleaning frames? Or? It's for humidification. So oh, sometimes right. you have to humidify sticky materials in order to unstick them to kind of separate them out to stop them from doing damage with each other. So that's what that one's for. Yeah, and also you'll see that we've just got large amounts of. Um, clear archival folders, four flap folders, acid free folders, boxes, um, including the now famous Stanley Kubrick boxes, which, whilst they are very good, sturdy boxes, um, are unfortunately not of a high enough conservation grade. The card that's used in them isn't good enough, and so we've had to replace them. Um, but we've so far been retaining the empty boxes. Um, we spent so long picking them out, didn't we? Exactly, exactly. But the boxes themselves are part of the archive because yeah. they're labelled and... Yeah. And we have loaned them before for exhibitions. Um, a student from Bath University borrowed some of the boxes to put together as part of an installation, which is quite nice. We first visited the archive and had a similar walk around, didn't we, with Richard? And as we said earlier, there's so much stuff there that we did like... Th- a similar kind of tour we could have put out a different hour episode couldn't we you just go to the, the same stacks but just do the box to the left yeah it's going to be equally fascinating and equally rich but just in a completely different way you know if we'd have done it that first time it would have been Richard pulling out a box from 2001 that's literally labelled chimp sounds and it's just a load of real to real tapes of different chimp sounds they tried out. You know, next to that you've got, is it the Jack Kirby 2001 yeah. comic? And it's easy to forget when you walk around that this was all Stanley Kubrick's stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're kind of like, oh yeah, of course they've got this. This is a Kubrick-related thing. Oh no, this is something he had until we died. But there's things like photographs of him showing NASA around the 2001 set. You know, which I'd never seen before, but it makes perfect sense. Mm. And up within those photographs, because you'd imagine if there was an article, they would use those photographs. But then the same set of photographs, they sort of wander off to the set next door, which is a dirty dozen. So then suddenly it's Stanley Kubrick and some people from NASA standing in the set. From the, it's just, you know, such odd, marvellous stuff. 
We got to play with uh, Stanley Kubrick's table tennis bats. No <laughs> table tennis table. Play with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just watched Barry Lyndon the day before. So he took us over to that section where, like you said, they've got all the shoe protectors because they were uh, filming in Muddy Island. And like, they open up a box and you're, you're, you know, I've been watched Barry Lyndon the night before, which is a Kubrick film from the late 70s. Isn't it Early 70s. Which is a Kubrick film from the 70s with uh, Ryan O'Neill. And like, you open up a box and there's all the wigs that you've just seen. <laughs> But in that same section, they had uh, Academy Award nomination certificates, and then we moved we moved on to The Shining. I can't remember if he was saying it was the most requested thing in the archive, or if it was not. Certainly, it seemed to me the thing that kind of one of the things that really jumped out at me was he pulls out a box, and in there is the ream of paper that says "All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy." Thousands of times within the ream, and it's the paper from the film. And it is. It's one of just such an incredibly recognisable piece of movie history, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, one of the most iconic props of all time. Yeah. And it's, it's there in the elephant. <laughs> so we got an, an initial tour from Richard and a, a guide through thing, and then our, our recorded tour. But in between, we made separate visits to the archive, made an appointment, and picked out beforehand the sort of things we wanted to look at, and. You have an idea from the catalogue of what you're getting, but then you actually get into the boxes and you're just like falling into things, aren't you? I, I, uh, where to look? There's mainly letter, letters I was looking for, and I looked. There was a, a Paths of Glory related box, and um, I was just looking for a correspondence. And there's a letter from Francois Truffaut asking to use footage from Paths of Glory in, in Jules Right. Just a personal letter from Truffaut to Kubrick, and I'm like holding it yeah, very right. carefully, obviously. But just sort of going, this was held and written on by Francois Truffaut, and then posted to Sammy Kubrick, who then opens it up. And, do you know what I mean? It's just like remarkable to sort of think of the, the resonance of that particular piece of paper. Um, I had a look at an annotated synopsis of Lolita that was sent to the censors in America with their notes and objections, and then Kubrick's responses underneath, which was great. Um, there's a bit on page 85 where the censors worry that Kubrick is uh, insulting the police unnecessarily. <laughs> uh, and on page 87, some pills are mentioned, and they want to be clarified whether they're vitamins or aphrodisiacs. <laughs> um there's a, a really interesting bit, though, in terms of like the strategy that Kubrick employs, where on page 108, um, the Virgin... <laughs> the censor objects to the mention of Virgin Wall. Um, uh, they say uh, this reference is neither smart or funny, just dirty. And Kubrick says, I think he's completely wrong, but it's a matter of opinion. Um, and then on 110, the same sort of joke comes up again. And... Kubrick says, this stuff is too good to go, let's fight for it. But then on page 147, there's another suggestion from the censors, and he's like, these are the kind of changes I would like to trade for the more important ones. Mm. So it's almost like he's sort of, you know, using uh, various sort of things to sort of trade off in terms of, like, keeping other bits. In the Full Metal Jacket section, there was a, a, a file labelled Arms Dealers. And Did you go in it? Yeah. And it, it's just... Uh, uh, selection of catalogues and introductory letters 
from a selection of the UK's leading arms dealers at the time that wow. Kubrick was looking at. Um, Mannery Engineering, Chamwood Ordnance, Ensign Ordnance, Vickers Engineering. And it was just, again, just this remarkable thing. And you're like, of course he would be looking at arms dealers' catalogues because he's trying and to... And it's 15 years later, he's still got the catalogues there. Of course, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. In, in a fire marks arms... Uh, well, this is the thing, you know, as, as Richard said, looking at his, his own library, he was a man fascinated by the military. And yeah. I also looked at the cutting notes for Eyes Wide Shut, which, you know, I I didn't get a lot out of it because technically I don't understand what they were referencing in terms of the cuts and whatnot. But what's interesting is all across the pages there's doodles of tanks and guns. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so it's this real sort of insight into, of course, you know, while they're sort of chatting about bits and pieces, he's just like drawing a little tank in the corner. And letters as well, aren't they? They're the, they're the gold. Yeah, that was what I went for. Um... You know, stuff from Peter Sellers and all kinds of people. You seem to be quite taken... Is it Patrick McNee? Patrick McNee, yeah. Yeah, he writes to Kubrick, essentially angling for a role, doesn't he? Yeah. So it yeah, sends yeah. him what you would He's think He's trying to get like... a role in what eventually became Eyes Wide Shut, isn't he? But yeah. in the early 70s or late 60s, whenever yeah. it was. Which would have been fascinating, I think, to sort of see. Yeah, that. yeah. But he, uh, he includes, like, a headshot and a holiday snap, bizarrely. <laughs> I found one letter that tickled me, and it's really a bonus that it comes from SE17, like literally like a quarter of a mile away this person lived, and now their letter is in the Stanley Kubrick archive, and they or their fam- they and their family would have no idea that Kubrick even read it, since it was not addressed to him, let alone kept it for the rest of his life, and it's ended up at the elephant. So it's from 68 Alberta Street, London, SE17. Dear sir or madam, I'm wondering if you, in your capacity as managing director, can enlighten me on your production of 2001 A Space Odyssey. After spending £2 on tickets, I'm entitled to something in the way of an explanation or a refund. I await your comments with interest. Yours faithfully, Mrs M.A. Cowley. (laughs) Well, he did uh, file them away under fan letters, crank letters. Mm. He had this sort of sub-filing system, didn't he? Um, I was on the lookout for South London related letters as well and found one from uh, F.C. Crisp of Streatham right. who um, writes to Kubrick offering his services as an actor and there's this remarkable uh, section where he outlines uh, what he can offer which is, he says, uh, I'm over 40 I have no experience of acting on film or indeed on the amateur stage <laughs> and the final line is What's it going to be, eh? <laughs> so, yeah, bold. FC Crisp as well. It's a very yeah. much a, a name from the past, isn't it? Yeah, right, right, right. Not my favourite letter, though. And my favourite letter doesn't have a South London connection, unfortunately. But it is tremendous. My favourite letter that I found in the archive is from the Miami Stanley Kubrick Fan Club, which this fella set up on behalf of Stanley Kubrick in Miami. Just him, is it? I don't know how big the sound... You'd imagine it is just him, because surely if anyone else was in this fan club... They would have been writing the letter. Well, they would have told this guy that there's an E in standard, <laughs> which he has omitted ah. throughout the entire oh, letter. That's great. So it's sort of he's made this sort of header at the top that says Miami Stanley Kubrick fan club um, oh, no. without an E in it. And uh, there's a great line where he says, uh, don't worry... You'll be see, you'll be receiving an official Stanley Kubrick T-shirt soon. 
Oh, no. No, eat. <laughs> and also, <laughs> you're saying this is Andy Kubrick. Yeah. Like, design was official. Then at the end, uh, having done all this, he does ask if he's got any spare cameras. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot, I don't know if you notice that, in a lot of the letters, it is just people sort of going, and if you've got, you know, it's very hard for me to get a camera around here. Well, has so to be get like to say, can I get my camera back? Like, <laughs> constantly. Uh, I'm prepared for interview questions, Steve, uh, about me and my work as a podcaster in South London and the requests are not coming but you know if anyone asks me what my favourite place in South London is it, I'll be saying the University Archives and Special Collections Centre the Stanley Kubrick Archive right, let's give some information out Steve on how people might go and see it if they're so inclined I don't want to just send everyone there like oh you definitely got to go and see it because you know yeah have a purpose isn't it? have a purpose man but if you're interested in Stanley Kubrick and like if you're not, get interested. And there's plenty of other stuff as well, as we, as we touched upon in the episode. If you go to archives.arts.ac.uk, you can see the full catalogue. So it's not just Stanley Kubrick. There's lots and lots of other stuff, as, as we mentioned in the show. They're open Monday to Friday, 1pm to 5pm, but you will need to make an appointment. You can email archive-inquiries at arts.ac.uk. They're on Twitter at UAL underscore archives. You can order Stanley Kubrick New Perspectives, the book that Richard has co-edited, a collection of essays on Stanley Kubrick, from blackdogonline.com. Big thanks to Richard and the staff at the archive for inviting us along. And helping us with our visits as well. Yeah, very much so. Such a pleasure. <laughs>